Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their life to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and worldwide environmental issues. Today, my featured coffee is from Cafe Maki Pukuna. My guest today talks more about this coffee during the episode. In this episode, I talk with Isabel Antonada, a conservationist and operations director at Maki Pukuna Reserve and Eco Lodge. We talk about the valuable work done at Maki Pukuna for the last 33 years, sustainable and community-led ecotourism, Andean bears, biodiversity, and of course, coffee. We also discuss some of the threats they are facing and how you can help from home. Hi, Isabel. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, as usual, we'll start it off by getting to know you a bit better. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and where your interest in nature and wildlife conservation first started? Yes. Thank you so much, George, for having me on your podcast. It's such a pleasure. And I really appreciate you taking the time to you know, spotlight conservation efforts around the world. Um, so my name's Isabel Antoneta, uh, and I'm from Ecuador. I was born in Quito, um, but I grew up in the United States, uh, primarily due to my mother's work and studies. And so I grew up in a conservation world. My parents started uh, the foundation that I helped them run right now that's called Fundación Maquipucuna, which is a rainforest conservation uh, nonprofit here in Ecuador, in the cloud forests of Ecuador, um, 33 years ago. And so at one point, my mother went to the US for her studies in ecology to do her PhD. And that's when I was basically raised my first few years in, uh, in the United States. And now I'm back in Ecuador. And I'm technically an architect. I focused on sustainable architecture, um, but here at the foundation and at the Eco Lodge that we help run, one of the efforts to help finance our conservation efforts, I actually am, <laughs> I wear a lot of hats <laughs> in the foundation. I've helped in administrating the, the Eco Lodge in sales and marketing, especially this year in the pandemic, we kind of all had to wear a few more hats. Um, but I've also worked in a lot of the, I guess, uh, you know, um, design and branding of the foundation and also grant writing and uh, just anything related to helping the foundation kind of get a little bit more visibility in the work we do. And also working uh, in environmental education and, uh, and youth. So I've helped run the environmental education program for the last six years. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's always um, wherever it is, whatever it is, environmental education for young people and youth is always incredibly vital. Um, yeah. The reserve, the Maki, Maki Pukuna Reserve. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. I'll, I'll, I'll say it along. Um, why was it first... Why was it first established? What was its main purpose right at the beginning, 33 years ago? So from the beginning, the get-go, the purpose of my parents' life work basically has been conservation. They were exploring 
the cloud forests uh, near Quito. We're actually still within the metropolitan district of Quito in a rural area. And um, they had a friend who, they have a friend <laughs> who's an entomologist and biologist. And he was passionate about, you know, the insects in this region. There was unfortunately unprecedented uh, deforestation in the mid 80s when they were, you know, coming out and exploring this as young kids themselves. I mean, they were 23 and 29 at the time that the foundation was officially started. And they just, they dreamt of having 100 hectares um, to protect. And in the end, now they've dedicated their lives to this. So now it's nearly 6,000 hectares that uh, compose the, the reserve Reserva Maquipucuna. Um, here in northwest Ecuador, in the Choco Andino uh, region. Wow, that sounds amazing. And yeah, obviously, um, deforestation, a big issue. Uh, and we'll come to some more issues later. But talking about kind of the, the area, it's really interesting actually to hear how um, close it is to the city. Because uh, obviously in your message, you described it as an incredibly biodiverse space um and that's very alien to all my uk listeners we don't have much biodiversity especially in their cities um but it's home to the reserve is home to 25 percent of ecuador's bird species 12 percent of ecuador's plant species and 15 percent of ecuador's mammals are there many places as biodiverse in ecuador that are as protected no <laughs> no not no, and actually that's part of the wonder of Makipukuna and my parents' work. They really had the foresight to protect this area, which despite being so close, they realized was just this big green area, but a highly biodiverse area. Um, we estimate that it's probably within the, one of the top 10 most biodiverse areas in the world. It's within the tropical Andes. Uh, which is a larger bioregion, but within the tropical Andes, it's in a smaller biome known as the Choco Andino. And so the Choco Andino is a term that my mother helped coin uh, through her PhD dissertation because they took the plant study of Makipupuna, of the 6,000 hectares, um, which is around 2,000 species. And they were able to do an analysis of that compared to the Choco region, which is in Colombia and Ecuador, and determined that despite being at a much higher altitude, uh, for the most part, this reserve, um, at least, this region um, holds similar species, but also um, just a highly biodiverse set of species of plants and uh, you know, flora and fauna. And the thing is, it has to do in part because of our position in, on the equator, um, you know, the convergence of, of um, wind currents that come from the south and north and also the, the Pacific. Um, we're kind of squished between the Pacific and the Andes mountain region. Mm. And then on top of that, we also, um, have a very large range of altitudes. So the lowest is 900 meters above sea level in the reserve, and the highest 2,700 meters above sea level. So wow. you have this combination of factors that 
that and obviously intact still forest so so it's you know a very very biodiverse area because of all of these reasons that's amazing yeah it's it's somewhere i've always always wants to go um my uncle traveled through south america several years ago and he's told me incredible things obviously as a conservationist i know that tropical rainforest is one of the most biodiverse habitats on earth and then there's obviously ecuador as a country um you do face the same problems that the rest of the continent face with mining and deforestation but it is an incredible place you have the galapagos just off the coast which obviously is a an incredible and very well-known archipelago um and yeah the the area around Makibukuna that you described is just sounds um incredibly important and and somewhere we really need to protect one of the ways you're you're funding your conservation efforts is through ecotourism i've spoken on the podcast before about ecotourism i've done a whole episode on it and i've had a lot of discussions with my friends and and family and fellow travelers and nature lovers because it's it's a very contentious issue at times it's done very very well at other times it's done very badly and sadly it can perpetrate quite sort of neo-colonialist and, and often quite racist ideals and ideologies, which is very sad um, that it's not done well, but obviously there are a lot of places that it's done excellently. Does uh, Maki Bakuna and, and do you as uh, the reserve and organization work with local people to kind of ensure that they're part of the conservation process? Like how does that, how does that work? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we are from Ecuador. I speak like an American, but I'm from here. Yeah, um, and 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 the, I mean, it, it's really important to to note kind of the work that my parents did from the get go. They realized that conservation would only be sustainable if the the local communities were involved. So there are no indigenous communities here, um, but there are you know long-time settlers in these parts. Um, and so basically one of their first uh, jobs was to do an analysis of our neighbors. So we have two great examples of um, really well done, you know, ecotourism and um, projects that have been impulsed by the foundation. So one is Santa Lucia. Santa Lucia are our neighbors to kind of the east, northeast. Um, and basically, they were a co-op that previously were dedicated to deforestation, to harvesting hardwoods from primary forests um, to sell and even hunting, including hunting Andean bears. And Andean bears, also known as the spectacle bear, same species and only species in South America, will be a very key species that I'll talk about in just a little bit. And then the other community is Yungilla, and they um, were southeast, they are southeast of us. They were a community dedicated to cutting down trees, again, primary forest, to create charcoal for the barbecues of the city, city mm. folk. And really it was not even great, you know, economic, outcome but it was what they had it was what they could do and these were quite uh well at least you can get it was quite a poor community and, and Santa Lucia as a co-op was not you know doing the best and would not have been sustainable at all 
So what my parents did through the foundation was write grants and they were able to um, propose projects that were funded through various organizations. The foundation throughout the years has been granted many grants from various larger foundations and other organizations worldwide, like the World Bank or uh, GAF or uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service in the US and MacArthur Foundation, et cetera. And so they were able to get grants to help impulse these two communities to develop their own community-run ecotourism projects. Now they're completely autonomous. They you know, got the initial help and funding and impulse and training, but they're completely on their own and successful. And they've won certifications and awards for being um, you know, successful ecotourism operations. Um, in 2018, we just won the To Do Award. It's uh, an award for socially responsible and uh, sustainable ecotourism. So, you know, we have the backings, and that's recently. We've also won a few awards throughout the last 33 years that, you know, have shown that we have models for ecotourism and for sustainable conservation and sustainable development efforts that work. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the, the legacies that I hope to continue. I'm kind of the generational uh, continuation of my parents, you know, lifetime work. Yeah, that was, that was an amazing answer. Thank you. Um, I worded the question poorly to begin with. Obviously, I, I know from talking to you at the start that you are Ecuadorian. By local people, I, I just meant the sort of, as you said, um, long-term settlers or if they were around indigenous communities um so that is a perfect answer thank you very much so talking of andean bears or spectacled bears as you mentioned briefly within that answer um within the reserve there's a small area of about 200 hectares that has become a sanctuary for this species and it's the only known site of an annual andean bear congregation um, what does this congregation look like and why is it so important to have this area protected for these bears? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, so it has a little bit of a long answer, but it's worth the, worth the wait. <laughs> so yeah, of course. basically um, about 25 years ago, there was a small reforestation project. There was also an introduction of a few, um, three Andean bears here in this region. Um, and just a little background on Andean bears. So Paddington is a really well-known little bear, uh, you know, named after Paddington Station in England. And so in London. And the thing is, he is the same species. He's from, supposedly from Peru. And, and uh, so when we talk about spectacled bears, it's the same as Andean bears. And why um, we prefer the name Andean bears is because their, re their range of habitat is throughout the Andes, throughout Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and the northern part of Argentina. And the thing is, not all of them have perfect spectacles. And so that's really important because their facial markings are like a digital fingerprint that we actually use um, to identify them. And so I'll, I'll use that in a second to explain how we know what bears we've seen here in, in this 200 hectares. But the first 50 hectares that were sort of helped 
reforest because there was a part of the, the reserve that was already deforested when the purchase was made. Um, my mother as an ecologist decided to choose a species of tree that was a good pioneer species in a new forest that was native, of course, and that could potentially be used in a sustainable manner for the harvesting of wood when needed for constructions for the eco lodge. So she chose a species of Laurasia, um, which is in the same family as the avocados we eat. And it's a, basically, it, the common name of the tree is Pacche, and the common name of the fruit it bears is aguacatillo, which translates roughly to mini avocado. And basically it's a mini wild avocado um, that attracts the bears to these 200 hectares. And we know it attracts them here, it could possibly attract them to other parts of this region where there are an abundance of these trees as well. Because like I said, it's a native species. Um, there are namesakes in this region that bear the name Pachijal, which means like area of Pachis. So it's not just unique to our reserve, but our reserve being protected for so long has become a sanctuary for bears where they know they won't be hunted. They won't, um, they won't be, you know, persecuted. They won't be approached in a manner that they feel uncomfortable. We've had a protocol for years now when we approach them for, for bear sightseeing, which is to maintain at least 200 meters from the tree where they're at, um, to always be mindful of our presence amongst them, to, to wear neutral colors, to not wear any scent that might offend them. Um, they're very territorial, normally solitary species. But what's unique about this area is that in our trail system, where there are these trees, where they have the fruit, whenever they smell it from kilometers away, they migrate here and they congregate here, very close to the eco lodge to eat the fruit. And so basically about once a year, we see them between four and 12 weeks, depending on how many fruits, depending on the subspecies of pakche that's bearing fruit that year. And basically we're monitoring them year long, but it could happen anytime between July and February. So it's a really right. big range and it's never predictable yet. Um, but when it happens, it's amazing because there's so many bears, it makes it quite easy for our bear trackers to go out, you know, specialized guides to know how to seek out these bears. Usually they're previously hunters who've turned into guides and they're experts in tracking wildlife. And then they call or WhatsApp uh, the guide that has the, the group here at the lodge and let them know where to head in the trail system. And so basically um, this phenomenon is so unique that it's allowed for you know, multiple bear studies. It's allowed uh, for us to join forces with other organizations, other private people, and even the Metropolitan District of Quito to declare an Andean bear corridor for conservation, which we're at the heart of. It was uh, fundamental in helping, you know, push for the declaration of UNESCO's uh, seventh biosphere reserve here in Ecuador. And um, last but not least, it's obviously an amazing attraction for ecotourism here in, in the reserve. Um, and so, all of these, oh, and, and I must mention, of course, it's been one of the, it is the site where the BBC spent one entire month 
filming for their Seven Worlds, One Planet series. So the four minutes of Andy and Bear that appear on that series was all filmed here at Magtipapuna. Oh, that's amazing. And goes to show how much work is put into these these films, but it's great that they got to um, put uh, the work you do on such a global stage. Even exactly. No, I, I mean, I'm, we're really thrilled to have had the BBC here. They're wonderful and we obviously love their, their film. It's, it's phenomenal footage. Um, I think the only qualm we have is that we wish that they would have, you know, and not just with us, with generally all of the sites that they film at, you know, BBC likes to make wildlife seem like it's separate from humans. And I think one really important thing for conservation is to realize that as much as it's beautiful to see wildlife in this pristine setting, it isn't separate from humans. If we didn't have this conservation effort for 33 years, we would not have the ability to film such things. And so one thing I wish, and I've heard other you know, conservationists, other reserves say about filming from people like BBC, <laughs> is that we wish that they put you know, a little bit more credit behind the human efforts to maintain these natural spots as they are, pristine nature, you know? It's, that's maybe one thing I really wanted to say. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. Yeah, please, please do say that. This is um, a totally safe space to say anything you like, especially about the BBC, who are not, definitely not above criticism um, as someone who's wants to go into that particular industry in the future. It's important to, to hear these things, especially for a lot of my listeners. So thank you. Thank you for opening up, you know, the, the, the platform to, to say all of these things. Also, you know, to talk about successful conservation, because I think now more than ever, it's such a critical time for wildlife and for ourselves as, as a species. You know, we highly depend on our in, intrinsic you know connection to nature and so we must protect our home it's not just and it's almost a little selfish but it's not just protecting these beautiful things that are separate from us we're very much integrated in in this habitat yeah yeah definitely without without a doubt um so in your in your message to me talking about connection nature and and kind of you know obviously carrying on the theme of, of protecting our, our natural spaces. In your message, you described some of the threats facing Maki Bakuna. We won't go through all of them because there is quite <laughs> a few, uh, sadly, but, but these did include metallic mining. And I wanted to sort of focus on this because I had um, a guest on the podcast on the opposite, on the um, further northern end of the the north um of the american continents uh, in alaska talking about mining um so i think it's it's a really important subject to touch on uh, i know how dangerous this practice can be for people and wildlife this it, it's a big example of damaging and unsustainable resource extraction can you talk about these mining concessions that you mentioned and why they are so dangerous for wildlife and the local people um, around the reserve. Yes. And so I know I, I don't have time. There's no time to talk about all of the threats I briefly mentioned. Um, so maybe not the smaller ones, but the ones that are conducted by individuals and not big corporations is hunting. So we always 
are you know trying to get more funding for um, park guards, for park rangers, for the reserves, so that we can prevent that. Um, and one of the big problems, aside from mining, which is probably the biggest one, is very related to mining, and it's land trafficking, and it's people, you know, getting involved <laughs> corruptly in the government to also, you know, alter government papers uh, for the properties to, you know, one, scam people. They're basically pretending to sell and resell properties that aren't theirs, that happen to be in the southern part of the reserve. Um, but it's highly related to the mining because we actually are suspicious that maybe uh, the, the big group of, you could say, the mafia of land traffickers that's behind that kind of land trafficking scheme are somehow being funded by a mining corporation. So it's, I mean, it's a little, con, you know, conspiracy theory sounding, but truthfully, you no, know, they have so much funding for that we, we suspect that's possible and that they're trying to also degrade our, our say, our, our, our hold, you know, our official title of this land in order to make it easier for a mining company to swoop in and, and take possession. And it's so much so that despite being in a protected forest status, despite being in an important birding area, um, in a key biodiversity area, uh, also, you know, one of the bio top biodiversity hotspots and in the heart, literally the, the largest nucleus of the biosphere reserve, we still have two mining concessions that somehow were approved by the government. Um, and it's not happening yet, thankfully, but it's approved. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind boggling to think that in such a biodiverse area, in such an important area for conservation that's been protected for so long, that has all these supposed, you know, protect for the, the city here, we have to deal with something that's illegal, but yet approved by our government. So it just comes to show we're not even just fighting against individuals or corporations. We're also fighting against our own government that's not helping us protect what they should be protecting. Yeah, that's, I mean, to be honest, you said, you said it's a bit conspiracy theory sounding, but I have no problem believing that at all. Um, I've spoken to too many people sadly around the world um, either on the front lines of the climate movement or people I've worked with in the past or in members of indigenous communities that have just said too many similar things um, even in Alaska mm. um, with uh, with the pebble mine campaign last year um, it, it's it's yeah it's, it's a familiar um, conversation sadly and hopefully I were wishing you all the best um, from from the UK in in tackling that. Like, how how can people on an international stage get involved with helping you uh, face some of the threats um, that are that that you face? Well, thank you for opening up that question, and I'm so sad to hear that you know other other communities, other people have mentioned similar stories. It's, it's a shame that there's still not enough 
um, awareness, I would say. I mean, there's a lot more talk about it, of course. I mean, now it's almost commonplace or popular to hear about conservation um, versus my parents' time where they were young and they were investing their life savings in conservation and their family thought they were crazy to invest, you know, in something so odd, so unheard of in their, you know, in the mid 80s. Um, and now you, we see the, the results, you know, we have wonderful results. So I, I guess I would say it's, even though it's commonplace now to hear about conservation, there still is so much more effort needed to raise awareness about the immense need for us to protect our planet, our home. So I think, you know, it's important for, especially young people, even if they feel like their grandparents or parents are too old to change their, in their ways, I think if people learn more about what exists and what we have to do to conserve the planet, to conserve biodiversity and wildlife, um, you know, it's create more awareness, use the tools, use technology, use social media to help raise awareness. And part of that awareness is that if you can, if you're able to, you know, donating to small corporate, uh, not corporations, to small foundations, not corporations, um, not sadly, I, I would love to say, you know, big ones like Nature Conservancy or Rainforest Trust or World Wildlife Fund. They're so big that so much of what they get donated goes into administrative fees that it doesn't actually get down to the ground where it's most needed. So I would say, you know, try to find, you know, you know, local small nonprofits like Fundación Makibuguna who really need a helping hand, especially this year, we've, you know, we've dedicated our lives also to ecotourism. Ecotourism was one of the hardest hit uh, industries by the, by the pandemic and, and we really need a helping hand. You know, Makibuguna means a helping hand, but now we need a hand in, in raising the funds, even if it's grassroots led movements, um, to be able to sustain our conservation efforts and our uh, community development efforts and environmental education, all the things that we, we normally do. And I guess, of course, research is one of the most important things that we've had to put on hold without the funding for it, but we'd love to be able to do more research, which in turn generates more knowledge that helps us defend these areas. You know, if we know that there's a an endangered species here that's unique to the reserve, we can help, you know, find more funding to protect it. I think it is, um, there's a couple, well, definitely one in the near future, but maybe another coming out uh, and episodes on, on big NGOs coming out soon. So, so, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, keep your ears peeled for that, but there is really important, as you said, to, to focus on the smaller grassroots movements that often get ignored or overlooked and to, to pour your, if you have it, if you are able to redistribute your wealth to those smaller foundations and the, and the organizations and charities that are often ignored um, because they're so small and, and don't, you know, there's a people I've spoken to before who are part of organizations who just do science and they pour all their money into science, which means no one's ever heard of them because they, the funding they get, they can't afford to spend any of it on uh, advertising or massive outreach programs because 
they just don't have enough. They have to pour all of it into research. Um, so it's really important to, to highlight smaller foundations like, like yours. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for doing that, especially what you just said. I mean, that's entirely true. We've existed for 33 years and yet we're not even well known, I would say, in Ecuador. And that's because we've never put almost a cent into marketing or outreach, maybe some outreach, but not really marketing. We've only invested it, um, any profits from the foundation. And I uh, will talk about coffee a little bit. Um, we've invested it entirely into sustainable development and conservation and research. That's, I mean, that's been our mission from day one. And now we realize maybe we needed to invest a little bit in marketing so that we can have continued support. But it's so true. I mean, we just, we feel so passionately about the work we do that we, we didn't think to market it. We just did it. <laughs> um, and so, uh, that's a really great point and thank you for for saying that and if you don't mind I will just briefly say one of our projects that we have had a lot of support from Ecuadorians even this year which is amazing is creating a sustainable shade grown uh, organic coffee and so we actually produce our own coffee we're still not big enough to export it um, but we sell it locally and it's a great souvenir, but also, you know, Ecuadorians now <laughs> were actually sold out because so many Ecuadorians said it was such good high quality coffee, which was our goal to create high quality products so that it would generate a fair cost, not just put a fair trade label on it, that uh, we, we've had problems keeping up with the demand this year. No, that's amazing. Thank you for talking about that. I will... Um... Obviously, I can't as as I would normally. I I would not ask you um to to give me any because the air miles and exporting would just be counterproductive to the the message of the podcast. I feel, although that has happened in the past, so I need to be better with that. But I will be featuring your coffee as like the main co uh, featured coffee for the episode. So it's really good to hear you talk about that and how important it's Thank been you. as a <laughs> as an income stream. <laughs> If I know someone going to England in the next few months, I will definitely send you a bag of <laughs> coffee you. so you Thank can you. try that's, it out yourself. That's much appreciated. I'll um yeah, I'll if you could send me some more information on it on the coffee, that would be amazing. But I'll I'll drop you a follow up email uh, or message with some stuff to to talk about um after you finish the episode. I I think we're kind of coming Absolutely. to a little bit almost running out of time but before we finish we've got this little quick fire round to do uh so first off first question what's your favorite animal favorite wild animal definitely the andean bear where where is the place you like to go and connect with nature kind of somewhere the the one place you feel most at home in nature i guess um the reserve but maybe somewhere on the reserve perhaps Ooh, that's a great question. Um, there's several places throughout the reserve. We have seven trails that are really amazing and well-kept by our amazing staff, which is actually from the community Santa Marianita. And I would love to mention them right now because I didn't, but uh, they're the community closest to us and they're actually integral in our sustainable development uh, work and conservation efforts and ecotourism. All of our staff is directly from 
from the community. I forgot to mention that. Um, but so on the trails, there's a few spots. Um, there's one that is uh, the waterfall where I just feel totally at peace when I'm there and I love going by myself or well, usually the dogs follow me and just sitting there in the waterfall it's a little cold, but it's refreshing and it's just this amazing experience. And then there's one other spot that I just feel has this amazing energy. Um, and it's the spot where we've discovered in the last year some bioluminescent fungus. Uh, and almost every single time, I not only see the fungus, of course, but some other species, whether it's an insect or a mammal, <laughs> or a slug, um, something is always showing up there. Um, that's just really, really cool and interesting. Um, so I love, love, love that spot. It's, it's really magical for me and really meditative as well. Do you have a conservation hero? And now by this, by this I kind of mean someone who you really look up to, admire, respect, and who works towards your idea of what conservation should be. 100%. And that is my mother. Her name is Rebecca, well, Dr. Rebecca Justicia, Justicia in Spanish. She is not only an ecologist, but, you know, lifelong conservationist. And I've looked up to all of the work she and my father have done. Um, my, my father's work is incredible as well, but I think especially being a woman in science and conservation, it's extremely hard. And she started out young in a time where being young and, you know, youth was not respected. So work through so many barriers done and, and all of the work both parents have accomplished is just mind boggling. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm in awe of, of all of what they've accomplished. And so definitely she's my conservation hero. And last off, how do you take your coffee? So I love having an early morning coffee um, with some uh, coconut milk or almond milk, whatever's available <laughs> um, here in the cloud forest. Sometimes, you know, uh, vegetable milks are a little harder to come by, but we sometimes can find some coconuts and make our own coconut milk. No sugar. Our coffee is wonderful, and I always prefer French press as a method for uh, my coffee. And then it depends on if I'm eating uh, a local food known as patacones or majado, both products made from variations of, of green uh, bananas or plantains, but not either really it's maqueño or, or green bananas that are different here uh, we have so many varieties you make it into these um like double fried patties that are smashed that or the the mashed uh cooked banana or green plantain those two things go really well with a black coffee and i again don't have any sugar with our uh cafe maquipucuna so those are my two favorite ways to take my coffee I think you're the first person who's lucky enough, um, well, the first person on the podcast who is in the rainforest a lot and has said that you take your coffee in a French press. Um, I've spoken to a lot of field researchers <laughs> and filmmakers who all say 
um, instant black coffee because that's all they can get access to at their field stations or in the middle of the jungle. Um, so I think you're the first person to ever say on this podcast that you actually have French press coffee in the rainforest. Um, you must be very <laughs> lucky to not just get the, I, the instant stuff. I'm very lucky. And I mean, part of our, our whole goal with our coffee is that in order for, for it to maintain its quality, because we really maintain a very strict, um, you know, uh, quality measure of our coffee is... Um, from seed to cup, we really protect each step and make sure that each step is is the best possible so that we have the best product, final product <laughs> that we That's serve amazing. to either guests or for ourselves. Yeah, fantastic. It's the best way to have it, I think. And um, yeah, I think we're, we're really about done. But before we um, say bye, I just want to ask where can people find you where can people um sort of see the work that you're doing and follow follow you on social media or a website or something yeah so um you can follow maki Bukuna. we're just at maki Bukuna, and you spell maki Bukuna m-a-q-u-i-p-u-c-u-n-a uh and I don't know if I said it on, on the start of the podcast or before when we were just chatting, but it means helping hand. So Makipukuna refers to the Yumbo, the ancestral people that lived here before the last big volcanic eruption. And they would do commercial trade running but on foot from the coast to the Andes. And this region was a little easier to cross for being like Andes Mountains. So that's how we think it got its name because Maki means hand in Quichua and Pukuna means like blowing or, or going through in Quichua. So that's what we think, you know, this meant. It was like the place that gave you a helping hand. And that's our mission, uh, hand in hand with nature. And then also on Facebook, we're Maki Pukuna Reserve and Eco Lodge is how you can find us. And uh, last but not least, if you want to get in touch with me, Instagram's great. My handle's pretty easy. It's Isa Onta, I-S-A-O-N-T-A. And so you're welcome to reach out if you have any questions or if you want to get in touch about helping out, volunteering with Makibukuna, the foundation, or if you have any suggestions or ideas, we always welcome them. Amazing. Well, thank oh, you so much. Oh, and our website. <laughs> okay yeah yeah right. well I'll, I'll link yeah. it in, uh, i'll link it in the description down below okay um, great anyway. yeah it's just www.maggiebacuna.org amazing well thank you so much again for taking the time um i know we've had a couple, one or two connection issues but it's been a really good episode and a really um hopefully will be really well received i'm gonna go away and do some speed editing and get it out to my listeners for tomorrow um but yeah all this left to say is is thank you so much thank you so much i really appreciate you know the time you've dedicated to this and thank you so much for accommodating my schedule as well and staying up late to to do this and editing you know before tomorrow i really appreciate for you including us in your podcast and thank you for the work you're doing and i you know i commend you for it and hope that you know you can continue with your podcast it's amazing Thanks again to Isabel for taking the time to speak to me today. 
All the links to her social media will be in the description down below. So in today's episode, I said we're featuring coffee from Cafe Makupukuna. I think we actually almost covered everything there is to cover in the episode about this coffee, so there isn't really much more for me to say. If you feel like you've learned anything of value from the podcast, please consider supporting me through a one-off donation on Ko-fi. Any financial support I receive means I can buy ethically sourced coffee, expand my toolkit, and support local and indigenous coffee-growing communities and companies, and support any contributors to the podcast. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, and a few more places. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Dietman-Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists.